Welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of the morning of December 23rd, with a hard rain falling down here on Manhattan's Lower East Side. So, uh, have you had time to get up to speed on what is being portrayed as a conspiracy by far-right forces to overthrow the government of Germany and the possible role of Russia in this conspiracy. I am going to read into the record the brief digest that I wrote up about it on the Counter Vortex website on December 18th, and then we'll have some extended discussion and analysis. A Reichsberger plot, Russian hybrid aggression, question mark, the Brussels-based pro-EU think tank, International Foundation for Better Governance, IFBG, is calling the apparent thwarted ultra-right plot to overthrow the German government by the so-called Reichsberger movement, quote, a classic example of the hybrid aggression of the Russian Federation, unquote. The statement notes that Olaf Scholz, reportedly one of those marked for physical elimination, quote-unquote, in the Reichsberger plot, is a key supporter of Ukraine among Western leaders and was chiefly responsible for the recent German donation of Gephard mobile anti-aircraft systems to the Kyiv government. The IFBG concludes, quote, The circumstances demand that Russia must be completely isolated, receive the maximum possible sanctions, and be recognized as a terrorist state by the parliaments of Western countries. End quote. Conspiracy of atavism. In an operation codenamed Schatten, or Shadows, German police on December 7th arrested 25 people in raids across 11 states, who the Office of the Federal Prosecutor says were preparing for a Day X to storm the Reichstag building and seize power. Their leader is named as Prince Heinrich XIII of the House of Royce, which ruled over the Principality of Greiz in what is now the state of Thuringia from the 12th century until after World War I. There was an actual Prince Heinrich XIII who ruled Greiz in the early 19th century. The present-day prince was arrested in Frankfurt, where he evidently runs what his website vaguely describes as a business interest, quote-unquote. Very helpful. <clears throat> a second ringleader, identified as Rudiger von P, is accused of attempting to recruit members of the security forces for the plot and organizing an armed wing of the movement for the seizure of power. Active and former members of the military are among those arrested, and contacts are believed to have been cultivated at army bases in the states of Hesse, Bavaria, and Baden-Württemberg. One of those under investigation 
had been a member of the elite Special Commando Forces, KSK, and police searched both his home and his room at the Graf Zeppelin military base near Stuttgart, Baden-Württemberg. Accounts were not clear if this unnamed suspect was among the arrested. In July 2020, the second company of the KSK was formally dissolved because of suspected links to right-wing extremism. Definitely among the arrested was Bridget Malsack Winkeman, a Berlin district court judge who served as a member of the Bundestag with the far-right Alternative for Deutschland Party from 2017 to 2021. Also among the arrested was a Russian national, identified as Vitalia B., who prosecutors say was asked to approach Moscow on Heinrich's behalf. Accounts in the German press have insinuated that Vitalia is the girlfriend of the self-styled prince, although he is said to be married to an Iranian woman. The Russian embassy in Berlin issued a statement saying that it does not, quote, maintain contacts with representative of terrorist groups and other illegal entities, unquote. Arcane legal theories. In the arcane theories of the Reichsberger cult, the current German Republic has no juridical legitimacy, but is actually a a private corporation established by the Allies after World War II. They refer to it as the BRD GmbH for Federal Republic of Germany Limited. They want to reestablish the German Reich of the Kaisers that ruled from 1871 to 1918, whence their name citizens of the Reich, Reichsburger. This Second Reich, the first having been the Holy Roman Empire, of course, (coughs) came to an end with the establishment of the Weimar Republic in 1918, as did the aristocratic principalities such as Royce Greis, Heinrich's great-grandfather, Heinrich XXVII, was forced to abdicate at this time. All rulers of the house were named Heinrich in honor of the Holy Roman Emperor, Henry VI, who ruled from 1191 to 1197 and gave the family their lands and titles. The numbering system is reset upon reaching 100. The House of Royce had its land holdings confiscated by the new state of Thuringia in 1920, Various family manors and lodges would later be nationalized under the communist government of East Germany. After German reunification, Heinrich XIII spent years fighting legal battles to regain ownership of these. He apparently succeeded in recovering personal title to a neo-Gothic castle in Saldorf, Bavaria, which reportedly hosted many Reichsburger meetings in which the coup plot was planned. Plotting a coup in a neo-Gothic castle, eh? This this should make a a pretty good movie. (laughs) Other members of the 
Royce family had recently distanced themselves from Heinrich XIII as his conspiratorial proclivities became clear. Heinrich XIV of Royce, speaking officially for the family, dismissed him as a confused old man, quote-unquote. Misgivings were raised earlier this year when letters began to arrive in residence mailboxes in the town of Bad Lobenstein, Thuringia, urging them, in text punctuated with exclamation points in capital letters, to use a website to register for citizenship, quote-unquote, under the House of Royce. Others in the movement have been emulating this wackiness. In Wittenberg, Saxony-Anhalt state, one Peter Fitzek has declared himself King Peter and is giving out personally signed identity cards to those who sign up as his subjects. It is not clear if the citizenship registration website is that of the General Reichsburger Movement, statenlos.info, meaning stateless, a reference to the supposed non-existence of the contemporary German state. This theory is mirrored in the popular folklore on the stateside radical right, that the United States has been illegitimately ruled under admiralty law since the instatement of the 14th Amendment in the aftermath of the Civil War, and has no authority over sovereign citizens, quote, unquote. Meaning, of course, those who had citizenship rights before the 14th Amendment, that is, white men. This parallel is especially disconcerting, given the recent attacks on the power grid across the U.S. that have been attributed to far-right yahoos. Historical ironies. Despite their rejection of the German state established after World War II, the Reichsburger cult displays no particular nostalgia for the Third Reich. However, we have noted before that some Nazi nostalgists have resorted to the imperial flag of the Second Reich as a surrogate symbol to weasel around the prohibition on display of Nazi iconography under the Federal Republic. The Reichsburgers have even appropriated the usual facile, anti-fascist posture. Their rhetoric has often portrayed the European Union as fascist. And here I link to a photo of one of their rallies in Berlin, where uh, their banner reads, translated from the German, The German people, liberated in 1813 from Napoleon, liberated in 2013 from EU fascism, quote-unquote. This would appear to be yet another example of the widespread post-truth phenomenon of fascist pseudo-anti-fascism. In 2017, a Reichsburger follower was sentenced to life in prison for the killing of a police officer during a weapons raid on his home in the Bavarian municipality of Gergensgmund. Germany's far right has, since 2020, received a big boost, if you'll forgive the pun, from the 
anti-vax backlash, as evidenced by last year's apparent assassination conspiracy against the governor of Saxony state, mirrored, of course, in the apparent kidnapping conspiracy against the governor of Michigan here in the United States. As much of an historical irony as it may seem, German far-rightists increasingly look to Moscow for sponsorship and tutelage, raising slogans such as Putin save us. And here I link to a photo of um, such types rallying in Germany with a sign reading, translated from the German, Putin, save us from the corrupt BRD regime controlled by America and Israel. And, uh, you know, if you don't get the historical irony here, well, you know, just Google up what happened in June 1941. All right, some commentary. Now, I don't know how realistic this Reichsberger plot was as a coup attempt, although it certainly isn't very comforting. And I also don't know if this International Foundation for Better Governance think tank is correct that Russia was behind this plot, or if the prosecutors are correct that the plotters were seeking Russian support. But the fact that it is so plausible is very telling. And in terms of the parallel to the stateside radical right, or alt-right if you prefer, I don't know if they count as radical when they are on national television, (coughs) or when the Overton window has been widened to accommodate them, but uh, did you happen to catch Tucker Carlson's response to President Vladimir Zelensky's congressional address? on his Fox News broadcast of December 21st. Some quotes, quote, As far as we know, no one's ever addressed the United States Congress in a sweatshirt before, but they love him much more than they love you. He showed up at Congress dressed like the manager of a strip club and started to demand money, and amazingly, nobody threw him out. End quote. And this is avidly and immediately promoted on Russian propaganda outlet RT under the headline, Zelensky is house guest who wouldn't leave, quote-unquote, Tucker Carlson, a quote from his rant, subhead, listening to the Ukrainian president demanding money was a humiliating scenario, quote-unquote, for Congress, the Fox News host said. This is the same RT, which is avidly promoting voices on the left, or the tanky pseudo-left, such as Grey Zone, which are similarly taking a pro-Putin line. And I will point out, in case you missed it, that uh, Mother Jones magazine earlier this year, back in March, early into the Ukraine war, published a document titled, quote, for media and commentators, recommendations for coverage of events as of March 3rd, end quote, produced by the Russian Department of Information and Telecommunications Support. It read, quote, it is essential to use as much as possible fragments of broadcast from the popular Fox News host, Tucker Carlson, who sharply criticizes the actions of the United States and NATO 
their negative role in unleashing the conflict in Ukraine, and the defiantly provocative behavior from the leadership of the Western countries and NATO toward the Russian Federation and towards President Putin personally. End quote, translated from the Russian. The memo includes a quote from Carlson himself, quote, And how would the U.S. behave if such a situation developed in neighboring Mexico or Canada? End quote. Uh, such a situation as what, Tucker? A government coming to power that's attempting to break free from the U.S. imperial orbit? Um, that's actually happening in Mexico. I hate to tell you, Tucker. Google Andre Manuel Lopez Obrador, or AMLO, as he's affectionately known, the left populist president of Mexico, who has broken off drug war and security cooperation with the U.S. Perhaps you've heard of him? And I'll recall again the open enthusiasm for Putin displayed by the openly white nationalist and anti-democracy Nick Fuentes, who was recently in the headlines when he joined Trump, and the rap artist formerly known as Kanye West, for dinner at Mar-a-Lago, Trump's resort home in Florida. I will briefly reiterate that back in late February, exactly as Putin was launching his Ukraine invasion, Nick Fuentes hosted the America First Political Action Conference in Orlando, attended by Marjorie Taylor Greene, among other such luminaries, and Fuentes, presiding as master of ceremonies, grotesquely called for a round of applause for Russia, quote unquote, and led the assemblage in a chant of Putin, Putin. And I'll also recall again, and this really opens up the discussion I want to have tonight, the open enthusiasm for Putin's genocidal ally in Syria, Bashar Assad, ally or client, <clears throat> which was displayed at the alt-right hate fest in Charlottesville, Virginia, in the summer of 2017. Let's listen again to the audio of alt-right luminary Baked Alaska, as he calls himself, in a um, Twitter video from Charlottesville that we played on our podcast of December 3rd. Let's give that another listen. Can I show you, sir, on the street? Of course. Hey, hey helicopter rides, baby. Hey. Support the Syrian Arab army. Hell yeah. Fucking fight against the globalists. Assad did nothing wrong, yeah, right? Assad did nothing Assad's wrong. Assad's the man, replacing brother. Replacing Gaddafi was a Assad's fucking mistake. That's true, that's true. You're absolutely right. And, and what are we going to do with those commies? I think they're going to go and... Oh, no, we're dropping barrel bombs on those <laughs> oh, motherfuckers. Oh, barrel bombs, hell yeah. Hey, what, what happened to your two chemical, two chemical bombs would have solved this whole ISIS problem. That's but true. That's none of my business. Yay! Now, what I initially wanted to point out in that video was uh, the guy, if you actually watch the video, you'll see he's actually wearing a T-shirt that says Assad's barrel bombs. The barrel bombs being Bashar Assad's crude but very deadly incendiary bombs, basically huge metal drums filled with flammable liquids that explode napalm style upon hitting their targets. And he says, quote, Assad's the man, brother. Two chemical bombs would have solved this whole ISIS business, quote-unquote. So rather than denying 
Assad's chemical attacks the way the hypocritical anti-war left does, these radical right yahoos openly celebrate them. Again, they're not so deluded. But then I noted, upon listening to it again, that before that line, the same guy says, helicopter rides, baby, quote-unquote. Now, if you don't get it, this is a reference to the method that the Argentine military dictatorship used in the 1970s to liquidate the disappeared. They would fly them out over the ocean in helicopters and hurl them overboard into the sea with their limbs bound. So here we have open enthusiasm for Assad and the Argentine generals, which is hardly surprising. The major difference between them is that the Argentine generals killed mere thousands. Assad has killed maybe 100,000. And that just means the disappeared, not battlefield deaths. And another difference, of course, is that Assad and the Argentine generals were ostensibly on opposite sides of the geopolitical divide, with the Argentine generals within the rubric of U.S.-directed Cold War national security doctrine, or Latin American sub-fascism, as Chomsky has called it, although it must be said that Videla and Galtieri in Argentina were never as deeply in bed with the CIA as Chile's Pinochet was. Whereas Assad is ostensibly on the outs with Washington, though I say ostensibly because I think any objective reading of the facts indicates that the U.S. is actually tilted to Assad in the Syrian war. But the point is that while hypocritical or confused leftists think that they oppose or opposed the Argentine generals and Pinochet, but are soft on Assad because he's standing up the U.S. imperialism where they think he is, well, our enemies on the right are not so confused. They understand that Assad and the Argentine generals are fundamentally aligned and on the same side of history, if at a distance of two generations and several continents and oceans. And recall the Italian bust of a neo-fascist network called the Order of Hagal, which was apparently planning terrorist attacks in Naples that we also discussed on our podcast of December 3rd. And they evidently take their name, Order of Hagal, from what seems to have been a kind of mystagogic tract written by the Italian proto-fascist figure Julius Evola, who was also very popular on the more intellectual wing of the so-called alt-right here in the U.S. And we noted that in the regalia seized from their safe houses by police, there was both the insignia of Ukraine's Azov Battalion and of a pro-Assad formation called the European Solidarity Front for Syria, despite the fact that Assad and the Azov Battalion are on opposite sides of the current world geopolitical divide. Assad 
backed by Russia, and the Azov Battalion aligned with a Ukrainian state being backed by the West. But this doesn't stop radical right yahoos like this Order of Hagal from embracing both. It is only confused leftists who are so indoctrinated by campism and see everything in terms of geopolitics who fail to recognize the fascism on both sides. Our radical right enemies are not so confused. They see it all much more clearly. And I'm going to go off into an extended historical analogy here, because this whole notion of Ukrainian neo-fascists in the Azov Battalion fighting Russian neo-fascists among the Donbass separatists and the Night Wolves and Rusik and the Russian imperial movement and the other fascistic paramilitary formations on the Russian side, all of this is essentially a reprise of the 1990s Ustashe versus Chetnik horror show in ex-Yugoslavia, itself a replay of the 1940s Ustashe versus Chetnik horror show. And the Yugoslav wars of the 1990s, which in retrospect can be seen as test wars by the imperial powers East and West for the yet greater crisis we now see in Ukraine, provide another example of where the left was similarly duped into supporting fascists. Okay, to go over the basics, for those of you who may need a refresher, Yugoslavia was made up of six Yugoslav, or South Slavic, republics, the two most significant being Serbia in the east, whose 19th century monarchy became the monarchy of Yugoslavia after World War I, and Croatia in the west, but also including some non-Slavic peoples, primarily the ethnic Hungarians in the Vojvodina region of northern Serbia and the ethnic Albanians in Kosova in Serbia's south. Kosova being how it is rendered by the Albanians, better known by the Serbian rendering of Kosovo. The Serbs were, and are, Eastern Orthodox and generally looking to Russia for patronage, and the Croats, Catholic, and the pro-independence elements among them, were generally looking to Germany. And Bosnia, in between them, the geographic heart of Yugoslavia, and also the most ethnically mixed of the republics, was a mix of both Croats and Serbs, as well as Muslims, or Bosniaks, as they increasingly call themselves today. And the Kosovar Albanians were, and are, mostly Muslim as well. This patchwork of ethnicities being due to the centuries of contestation over the Balkans by the Turkish, Austrian, and other empires. In World War II, Hitler invaded and dismantled Yugoslavia. He divided off Croatia under the fascist Ustashe party into an officially independent satellite state in the manner of Vichy France, or what Stepan Bandera wanted 
in Ukraine. Though in that case, the Nazis didn't go for it and slapped Bandera in a concentration camp for refusing to rescind his Declaration of Independence. Just an aside. But this Ustashe Croatia also had rule over Bosnia. Serbia, on the other hand, was directly occupied by the Nazis, just as the northern half of France was, and it was territorially reduced, with Vojvodina given to Hungary and Kosovo given to Italy, which had also taken neighboring Albania. And armed resistance in Serbia emerged first among the royalist Chetniks, who sought restoration of the monarchy. And even though they were fighting the Nazis, they were themselves deeply reactionary Serbian nationalists. The Ostashe in Croatia actually established a death camp at Jasinovic and carried out genocide of Jews and Serbs, while the Chetniks carried out ethnic attacks on Croats and Muslims. But the Allies, at the behest of Stalin, started backing the communist partisans who were multi-ethnic and fought against the Ustashe and Chetniks alike, as well as the German and other fascist occupation forces. And at times, the Chetniks and German occupation would actually close ranks to fight their mutual enemy, the partisans. And the partisans took power after the war and rebuilt a united Yugoslavia. And while Serbia continued to be dominant in the new communist Yugoslavia in terms of influence over the military and bureaucracy, the leader of the partisans, Marshal Tito, who became the leader of the re-established Yugoslavia, was actually himself a Croat. And he famously broke from Stalin in 1948 and became a leader of the non-aligned movement. And his Yugoslavia became the most socially open of the East European communist states. Tito dies in 1980. There is a capitalist conversion. The International Monetary Fund imposes austerity. And at the end of the 1980s, ethnic nationalist movements begin to reemerge, scapegoating perceived ethnic enemies for the economic conditions, instead of blaming the IMF. And the first such movement was that of Slobodan Milosevic, leader of the Serbian Republic, who scapegoats the Albanians of Kosovo in the classic ugly terms. They're breeding too fast, they're lazy and uncivilized and a drain on the national budget. The same rhetoric and imagery that the Northern League in Italy has used against the Southern Italians and Pat Buchanan and later Donald Trump have used against Mexican immigrants here in the U.S. With the Titoist taboo on ethno-nationalism broken, similar movements began to emerge in the other republics, most significantly Croatia, where the leader Franjo Tudjman harnesses anti-Serb sentiment, much as Milosevic was harnessing anti-Albanian sentiment. And paramilitary groups are formed on both sides and a kind of neo-Chetniks and neo-Ustashe begin to emerge in Serbia and Croatia, respectively. Now, there aren't too many ethnic Croats in Serbia, but for historical reasons, which I won't get into for the moment, there is or was a substantial Serb minority in Croatia. 
And when Croatia seceded from Yugoslavia in 1991, the Croats and Serbs embarked on mutual cleansing from each other's territories. And finally, in 1995, at a time when Croatia was being backed militarily by the United States, the Tujman government launched Operation Storm and drove the Serbs from Croatian territory basically entirely across the border into Bosnia. But it's in Bosnia that things got much, much worse. Bosnia, or more formally, Bosnia and Herzegovina, upon independence in 1992, was quickly divided three ways between the Serbs, who established their Serb Republic in the north and east along the Serbian border, the Croats in the south and west along the Croatian border in the historic region of Herzegovina, and the Muslims basically controlling the official Bosnian government with its capital of Sarajevo in the center, which was very quickly besieged by the Serb forces. And despite the fact that the Muslim-led government in Sarajevo was officially, at least, committed to coexistence and a multi-ethnic united Bosnia, there were atrocities committed by all sides in a complicated three-way war over the next three years, and all three parties would, at various times, fight each other. But basically, there was a Croat-Muslim alliance against the Serbs, and overwhelmingly, the most massive crimes were carried out by the Serb forces against the Muslims. Concentration camps were established, such as that at Omarska, and genocidal massacres carried out, most notoriously that at Srebrenica in July 1995, in which some 8,000 civilians and possibly disarmed fighters were killed, Europe's first act of genocide since World War II. And this finally precipitated NATO intervention. There were token airstrikes against Serb positions. And finally, Serbian President Slobodan Milosevic agreed to represent the Bosnian Serbs at the peace talks, as they were called, at a U.S. Air Force base in Dayton, Ohio. And the deal was cut, whereby Bosnia was formally divided into two separate entities, a Serb Republic and a Croat-Bosnian Federation with the Sarajevo government having only nominal control. And the siege of Sarajevo was lifted, and the shooting stopped, but towns that had been cleansed of Muslims, such as Srebrenica, became a part of the Serb Republic. So, basically, genocide was rewarded in the name of peace. And, critically, there was no provision for the Kosovar Albanians within Serbia whose autonomous government, which they had enjoyed under the Titoist system, had been dissolved by Milosevic and who were, with reason, growing restive. And their nonviolent resistance movement under the civic leader Ibrahim Rugova was sidelined by hot-headed youth who eventually formed a guerrilla army, the Kosova Liberation Army, or KLA, and the Milosevic regime responded by unleashing massive ethnic cleansing of the Kosovar Albanians in 
1999. So-called Operation Horseshoe, with hundreds of thousands displaced, precipitating the much more massive NATO bombardment of Serbia that year. And as I've uh, acknowledged before, the ethnic cleansing actually greatly escalated after the NATO bombardment began. So there's a case to be made that the NATO bombardment was counterproductive, but it's also quite clear that the so-called cleansing had been going on before that as well. And after several weeks of bombardment, a um, ceasefire was worked out under which both NATO and Russia were brought in to occupy or police Kosovo, with NATO the perceived protector of the Albanians and Russia the perceived protector of the Serbs. In 2000, Milosevic would be overthrown in a popular uprising and would later be extradited to face charges at the War Crimes Tribunal for the ex-Yugoslavia that had been established by the UN at The Hague in the Netherlands, where he would die awaiting trial in 2006, and that same year, rump Yugoslavia, so to speak, by then consisting of just Serbia and Montenegro, was formally dissolved. And in 2008, Kosovo would declare independence, which has been recognized by the United States and most of the European Union member states, but not by Serbia or Russia, or really by the Serb minority within Kosovo. And now, jumping forward to the present day, Quite predictably, tensions are rapidly escalating in both Bosnia and Kosovo, and the Serbs in both territories, encouraged by Putin, are moving toward rejecting the fragile power-sharing agreements that have persisted since the 1990s. And during this period in the 90s, obviously, both the neo-Ustashe and the neo-Chetniks were fascistic or outright fascist, and the respective regimes that protected them stopped just short of being outright fascist, as both Tujman and Milosevic embraced ugly ethnic nationalism, but still maintained the outward forms, at least, of bourgeois democracy. There was clearly a strong fascist element at work in both the Serbia of Milosevic and the Croatia of Tujman. Despite the fact that they were on opposite sides of the geopolitical divide, Croatia increasingly aligned with the West, and Serbia increasingly looking to Russia for sponsorship and support. But what is very telling, and the reason I'm regurgitating all this history, is that the same tanky or pseudo-left forces in the West, which are today behind Putin, were then supporting Milosevic and the Bosnian Serb leadership whereas European and especially German neo-fascists and neo-Nazis were rallying around the neo-Ostache and forming brigades to fight alongside them, just as such types rallied around the Azov Battalion in Ukraine in 2014. So once again, the so-called left was manipulated into supporting fascism, and some of them were even so deluded as to think that it was actually anti-fascism, exactly as in Ukraine today. And at this time, I was doing my best to support, with a small group of comrades from groups such as the War Resisters League, attempting to build solidarity with the 
pro-coexistence and anti-militarist forces in all of the ex-Yugoslav republics. But my neither-nor position began to waver as things escalated the genocide in Bosnia, and I felt the need to support the Muslim-led Bosnian government, just as today I feel the need to support the Ukrainian state in its struggle for national survival. And bringing it back to Ukraine, the difference between the Azov Battalion on one hand and on the other, Rusik and the Russian Imperial Movement and the Night Wolves and the Wagner Group, is that the Ukrainian state, whatever wartime contingencies may be going on there in terms of shutting down pro-Russian media and so on, is basically a bourgeois democracy and has purged the original far-right leadership of the Azov Battalion and made some effort to clean up or restrain the far-right elements in the security forces. Whereas such elements on the Russian side are being harnessed and unleashed without the slightest restraint or equivocation. And in Russia, the ultra-nationalist hard-right, indeed, fascism has power at the very highest level in the person of Vladimir Putin in the Kremlin. And the radical right forces around the world are looking to Putin, not Zelensky, for support, tutelage, and sponsorship. And looking at Zelensky's history-making address to the U.S. Congress in Washington this week, I'll briefly turn to another of my perennial historical analogies the Spanish Civil War of the 1930s, when a democratic government was similarly besieged by fascist aggression. And, you know, I know that what-if thought experiments about the past are inherently speculative, and there is something self-indulgent about them, which is a little bit embarrassing. But if you'll just bear with me for a moment, can you imagine if in 1936... Spanish Prime Minister Largo Caballero had traveled to Washington to thank Franklin Delano Roosevelt for military support against the Axis-backed fascist forces of Francisco Franco and his generals, and if FDR had actually managed to overcome reactionary isolationist sentiment to muster such support. Of course, He didn't even try, and neither did Chamberlain in the UK or Lebrun in France. But just imagine if they had. Fascism could have been broken and humiliated in its test war. The human race could have been spared World War II, the Holocaust, the atomic bomb, and the post-war nuclear arms race, the Cold War and the post-Cold War unipolar world that the tankies supposedly reject, we are at another such moment. And for all the contradictions of the current world situation, I cannot bring myself to oppose Western military aid to Ukraine. No way. And ultimately, the battle to defeat Trumpism and the rising radical right forces here on our own shores in the USA is intimately tied to the defeat of Putin and Russo-fascism in Europe. This has been Bill Weinberg with The Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org. Support us on Patreon, patreon 
patreon.com slash countervortex. We need your help to keep going. Even a small weekly donation means a big, big, big deal to us. Believe me. Join the Counter Vortex. Join the Resistance. And rant on you next time.